As we come to John chapter 1 this morning, I want to remind us, uh, remind you that uh, there is an outline in the program if you'd like to use it. Uh, sometimes it can be very helpful. Sometimes people just forget that it's there. Um, and we have, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 1 today. We have Bibles that you can pick up when you come in if you choose. Uh, if anyone here doesn't have a Bible, we welcome you to take one of those Bibles home with you. Um, and then if you're really smart, just get your smartphone out and we're going to be in John chapter 1. And I want to also say at the beginning that uh, we still have the little screens and we're still waiting for the big screens to come. And so if you have trouble seeing from where you are, if you turn around, there's a screen right in the back. <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, new. It's, where, it's the first time that it's been used in a, in a worship service, and it's, it, it works pretty great. Um, so just turn your head, and we'll know what you think. When I was uh, in the fifth or sixth grade, I remember reading a pretty important book that impacted me, um, and uh, it's uh, a book that uh, some of you have read as well. Um, the author is John Howard Griffin, and he wrote a book called Black Like Me, and some of you know that book. John Howard Griffin was a white man growing up in Texas. And he sought to understand uh, the plight of African-Americans in the Deep South. So he determined to make a very bold experiment. Uh, he decided that he would change his skin color and seek to identify with people of color. So he darkened his skin with medication under the care of a dermatologist and for one week, he spent 15 hours a day under an ultraviolet light. Probably not quite like the sun, um, the lights people uh, use today, but 15 hours a day. Uh, and then to finish it off, because it, it wasn't quite even, he used uh, a walnut stain and, and uh, he... Uh, made a transformation into a black man. Um, his new disguise, for people who knew him, they did not recognize him. And so he entered this everyday life in the deep south as a black man, and he wrote a 188-page journal to record his life experience. He was usually treated with disdain by white people. Uh, he was forced to use the segregated drinking fountains and the segre segregated bathrooms and the segre segregated uh, lunch counters and cafes. Um, and then he traveled on by bus throughout uh, Louisiana and Arkansas and Alabama and Mississippi and, and Georgia. Griffin learned firsthand how black people were treated. And then he wrote this book, Black Like Me, and that was later uh, um, put into a movie. And uh, through this book, many Americans 
came to understand in a much better way the humiliation and discrimination that faced everyday people of color. Griffin left the world of the white man and entered into the world of the black man. Like that, Jesus left his world in heaven and he entered the human world. He humbled himself and he took on human flesh and was born as an infant in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, if you were here last week. The Apostle John was one of the 12 disciples. He writes at about 90 to 95 AD, really about 60 years after his life in person with Jesus and the early disciples. Um, in um, John uh, chapter 1, in Last week, we looked at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. So today, we are going to start with chapter 1, verse 14. And I, I'm going to just read the passage as we begin. Um, it's not going to be on the screen. You'll have to find it in your smartphone. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of the fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. So that's our passage that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And um, as we begin, I want to take us back to, to, to last week and just remind us why John wrote the book. Why did John write the Gospel of John? In fact, uh, when I meet people uh, who haven't had a lot of experience in reading the Bible yet, I always encourage them to, why don't you read the book of John first and read it as a story. And don't worry about what you don't understand. Read it uh, and look at what you do understand. And I always tell them there, there is a verse where John just clearly spells it out. And I want you to find it. Except today I'm going to tell you what it is, okay? John chapter 20, verse 31 uh, the Apostle John writes these words. He says, but these, these, these words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the message John wants people to get. Jesus is the anointed one, the promised one. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. By believing in Jesus, you may have life, a new life, eternal life, a new spiritual life, a new capacity to please God. So that's the purpose. That's why. And then he's going to, by the way, use the verbal form of believe 98 times. This is, a lot of people have come to faith through this book. 
through the years in the history of the church. So, picking up where we left off, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus displayed the perfect portrait of God. When Jesus came to this earth, he displayed the perfect portrait of God. Um, in verse 14, Jesus took on the form of humanity in his life on earth. And I'm going to go back to John chapter 1. Just stay with me now. John chapter 1 and verse 1. This is where we were last week. In the beginning uh, was the Word. Remember, in the beginning. This is going to connect with verse 14. So there's a reason here we're doing this. In the beginning. This goes back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what John wants us to know that is in the beginning... Jesus, the Word of God, was there in the beginning. And then he says, and the Word was with God. The Logos, remember that term last week? The Logos, which means, uh, uh, in the Greek world, it meant first principle, first cause, the cause of all causes, uh, reason, overseeing everything, a sort of a non-personal way to explain God because they didn't have any, they didn't know God. And then for the Jewish mind, this is an important word too, and it's about the revelation of God. It's about God communicating, God speaking. And uh, so it's a very important term. And now John just clearly identifies who this logos is, the word. And the word was with God. And uh, that means he was face to face with God the Father. Pretty unique situation. In the beginning, that was Jesus' relationship with the Father. This is all new to the first century world. It's pretty new to a lot of our world as well. And then he says, and the word, the word was with God in a face-to-face -face relationship, and the Word was God. Just to be clear, Jesus is God. This is kind of important. In fact, this truth affects nearly every doctrine we have about Jesus, especially our salvation. It's because of who he is and what he has done. If Jesus were just a man, his death on the cross would just be a good example. But because of who Jesus is, because his life, because it was infinitely valuable, because he is God... He paid the moral debt of the entire world forever for all time. It is done. He did the work. There, there is nothing more that can be done for the salvation of humans. It's totally complete. It's totally Adequate, And it's because Jesus was God. Now we jump to verse 14 that we're finally in the text. And then John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Logos, who was there in the beginning, who was in a face-to-face -face relationship with God and who was God. And then John goes on to say that he happens to be the creator who made everything, who made uh, our universe. And then this word, at some point in history, became flesh, took on a, a human body, and uh, made his dwelling among us. 
This is an important concept, too, for the Jewish mind in the first century when John said that this God made his dwelling among us. Right away, it would have brought to their thinking how God did that in the Old Testament. And he did it in the tabernacle that was built uh, for worship so that humans could meet God by going to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And uh, it would be fair to translate the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, it was a place for God. He took up his residence there. And then after the tabernacle, there was the temple that Solomon built, and God was present. He came to take up residence in that temple so that people could come and worship him. But now God has changed the game. He has taken up his residence in, the per in humanity, in the person of Jesus. Also in verse 14, Jesus displayed God's glory to his disciples. Uh, John writes, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. John wrote about his experience with Jesus. It was the experience he had with the other disciples. That's why he says we, we have beheld, We've, we saw it firsthand. We are eyewitnesses. When we think of the glory of God, we go back to the Old Testament and we think of the Shekinah glory. When, when uh, God's presence came on the tabernacle or when it came on the temple or when it left the temple or when God led his people in the Old Testament and it was fire by night and, and, and a cloud by day, God showed up. And, and John is saying, we saw the glory in Jesus. And on one occasion, John had a glimpse in Matthew 17 what this was like. So this is uh, Peter, James, and John. After six days, Jesus, this was intentional on Jesus' part, he took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So it's like this instant in time, God lets them experience who Jesus is. It's like this Shekinah inside Jesus just has to come out and radiate right through the skin of Jesus. And Jesus' coloring changed to a very bright light. Um, and, you know, Peter, James, and John don't know what to think. You know, Peter gets into trouble with his mouth. If you know the, the story, you can go back and, and read it in Matthew 17. And then we come to verse 5. Uh, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then what? Listen to him. This like got their attention. Jesus is more important than we thought. He's a bigger deal than we thought. The Father speaks. And um, 
I think there's a little lesson right there. Listen to him. That's, that's for us. We should listen to what Jesus has to say through his word, through his leadership in our lives. Now, this is not the only glory that the disciples experienced firsthand. Um, they experienced the glory of God when Jesus performed miracles. God's power was on display on many occasions. A little glory was let loose. And then there was the death on the cross that paid the penalty, paid the penalty for all sin. I just created a new word. And... Um, and then he was buried, and then on the third day he was raised. And the glory of God was revealed when Jesus was raised from the grave. And the people who saw them saw this new Jesus who had a, still had a body, but it was different. And then this Jesus ascended right before them into heaven, and they saw the glory of God, just a glimpse and the disciples are eyewitnesses. This is, a, this is important. In, in verse 14, we see that Jesus was also full of grace and truth, uh, that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. Describes Jesus' character and his life. He was a source of truth. He was a source of gra grace. And he modeled that, and he dispensed grace and truth. And we're going to come back to this concept in uh, verse 17. Then we see again in verse 15, Jesus was a formally announced by John the Baptist. Now, this was in verses 6 through 8 last week, and then John's just going to highlight it again right here in verse 15. And John says, John testified concerning him. John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, and this is what the, who John is referring to, he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So that's almost like a riddle. It's almost like a little mystery. He's given us a huge clue about Jesus. Um... John the Baptist was God's hand-picked pro prophet. And Jesus will have a lot to say about him in the future. Um, but God, and it's like, we, we have to remember too, um, it's like John the Baptist will be the last prophet of the Old Testament. Well, how can it be in the Old Testament? We're in the New Testament, right? Now let's think about the context here. All of Jesus' life was under the Old Testament law. The disciples were under the Old Testament law until after the death of Jesus. And um, so John is a prophet that God has handpicked, and uh, his job was to go before the Lord, to go before Jesus the Messiah, and to prepare the way, to prepare people's hearts. And he did that by, in a very unusual way. Prophets did things like this. But this is how God had John do it. John went out in the wilderness. He went away from people. He went outside of uh, the 
religious system of Jerusalem and outside the religious system of the temple where all the professionals were, the clergy were there. And he goes out and God draws people out to hear him. You know, no microphones, no bands, no large screens, just John. And he, he calls people to repent, to turn from their sin and get their hearts ready because the king is coming. Messiah is coming. He's preparing, and he doesn't even know yet for sure who he is. And John will have the privilege to baptize Jesus. We'll see that later in John. And he won't recognize Jesus until that day. Now, so we need to know, too, John is a cousin of Jesus. How would you like to know that your cousin is God? But John is a cousin. John is about six months older. His story is in Luke chapter 1. And so John says here, um, he who comes after me, so Jesus' ministry hasn't started or gone public yet. John's ministry was public first. Uh, John was born chronologically before Jesus. And so uh, he who comes after me, well, that'd be Jesus, has surpassed me because he was before me. Well, how can that be? That's the riddle. And the answer is Jesus existed long before Bethlehem. Um, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is about the 8th century B.C., and the, Micah the prophet uh, gives a little prophecy, just a small little glimpse here about the future. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small, you know, you don't even have a stoplight on Main Street. You're just a little thing. You are small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me... For God, one who will be ruler over Israel. He will be king over Israel. In fact, he's going to be the king. And he will be the king that becomes the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He will be a ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, that last phrase, origins from old, from ancient times, two phrases actually, for the Hebrew reader in the first century, Old Testament written in Hebrew, the Hebrew reader understands he's talking about eternity from everlasting, that this, this, this person exists from uh, eternity past. Um, what do you believe about Jesus before he was born. This is kind of like a huge thing. It, like I mentioned earlier, it affects the doctrine of salvation. It affects a lot of things about who Jesus is. He is not equipped to save if he's not the one that John describes here. Um, there's a recent... Uh, study that came out in 2021, so any research that comes out in 2021 would be considered quite current. 
Um, a new study from LifeWay Research finds close to three in four Americans believe Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So do you believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? 75% of Americans agree to that. And then uh, seven in 10, um, 72% actually say that Jesus, that Jesus Christians believe in was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. Um, and then uh, the average person, this is the average American, isn't quite sure about the Son of God's pre-existence prior to Jesus' birth. Around 41% say God's Son existed before Jesus was born. 32% of Americans disagree, and 28% say they're not sure. Uh, people don't know what to think of this whole idea of Jesus existing in the beginning with God. And then it says, the religiously unaffiliated are least likely to agree with the above statements. Uh, almost half, 48%, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Father. 33% say Jesus was really born in Bethlehem. Uh, these are not necessarily religious people. But, and fewer than 15% believe that he existed before uh, that, God, that Jesus as the Son of God existed before Bethlehem. Now, among Christians, among people who consider themselves Christians, among those people who attend, get this, they attend church four times a week or more. Now, that's pretty regular. So I'm assuming they're counting groups or going to something at their church in a week. I know when I came into ministry, we had three services that I was required to be at every week. Um, so among those who attend church four times a month or more, 98% believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Father. 95% say he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Now, notice the drop here. 63% agree the Son of God existed before Jesus was born. That means that 37% don't believe that Jesus as the Son of God existed before Bethlehem. See, what you believe about this is going to be huge. Jesus was formally announced by, by John. So what's our response to this? Um, our job is to announce Jesus to our world. John came as a witness uh, for God's Son. He spoke about what he knew uh, about Jesus. And that's our role, too. We are to speak about what we know about Jesus. We are to share that. Uh, it's good news. We can tell. We, we don't have to tell people what we don't know. But we can tell people uh, what Jesus is like. What's our experience with knowing Jesus? Uh, 
We can tell others how to begin a relationship with God. We can share with others how God answers prayer. We can share how God provides and how God has led us in the past. See, we're just supposed to tell what we know, tell the truth. That's what, that's what a witness does. In verses 14 and 15, uh, we saw how Jesus displayed the perfect portrait of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus displayed the Father with grace and truth. And I mentioned we'd come back to this. John alluded to this in verse 14. Um, if we look at verse 16, Jesus is a dispenser of God's grace. Out of the fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Kind of a little bit of a puzzling passage. But John is saying that uh, out of the fullness of God, out of the fullness of God's character, we who are Christ's followers have already received grace from God. When we place our faith in Jesus, for by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. That's grace. It's God's favor. We don't deserve that. We've received grace. We didn't get what we deserved. But after that's not the end. The grace just keeps coming. Grace after grace after grace after grace. Um, we begin the relationship, and John's already gave, given us a clue about this in John 1.12. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who embraced Jesus by faith, those who believed in the person, in the name of Jesus Christ, he gave the right to have a new life. He gave the right to change from being an outsider to be an insider in God's family, to become a child of God. There's a lot more than just becoming a child of God that happens when we place our faith in Christ. Uh, if we read through the New Testament, we would understand that uh, our sins are forgiven when we believe in Jesus, that we're given eternal life, that we're made citizens of heaven, that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. There's a lot of things that happen when we place our faith in Jesus. And we receive that grace. But there's grace upon grace. John, uh, James chapter 4, verse 6 is an example here. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And some translations say favor. They use the word grace. And favor is grace. And when we walk with God in humility, we get God's grace. Um, God gives us grace when, when he answers our prayer. He gives us um, grace by providing our, our, for our material needs. Uh, he gives us grace when he leads our lives and we, we need direction and we ask. 
Uh, when, when we ask God for strength for daily living, he gives us grace. He enables us not to stay where we are, but to grow and mature and display the fruit of the Spirit. Also, we come to verse 17. Jesus' life with grace and truth supersedes the Old Testament law of Moses. Verse 17. Uh, for the law was given through Moses... So Moses was the source. God worked through Moses to give the law of the Old Testament. That includes the Ten Commandments. It, and if you take all of the commands written in the Old Testament as law, there are about 613 commandments. And this was um, the purpose of giving the law was to show people their need for God, that they fall short. And ultimately, what God was doing is he was creating a people who were getting ready for something much, much bigger. They, they needed a Savior because keeping the law was wearing them out and they were failing miserably at it. And it was a complicated sacrificial system that uh, year after year they had to continue to go through these things and they had to... Uh, have animals sacrificed on their behalf, and it was the way they were to be worshipped. But this wasn't the answer. This was creating a need in the people of God. Read the book of Galatians. It'll explain it. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The grace and truth that Jesus brought brought in a new covenant that superseded the old covenant that was much better than the old covenant. And Jesus fulfilled this old covenant by his sacrifice for our sins as a payment for our moral debt. Um, Jesus... Jesus's life, so Jesus is the only person that was ever to um, follow the law in every detail and never fail. And so there is a fulfillment of humanity in Jesus to keep the law. And now only Jesus is worthy to stand in for us, to pay the sacrifice for our sin. And God viewed that sacrifice just like uh, the sacrifice in the Old Testament where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to, to make an offering to cover the sins of the nation for one year. But Jesus' offering of his life and the shedding of his blood will cover the sins of the world forever. Jesus' Life with grace and truth supersedes the Old Testament law of uh, Moses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus speaks to this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, to fulfill them. Jesus valued the law and the prophets. But, but he didn't come to destroy them. He came to fulfill them, to complete them, and to bring in a really a new age and a new covenant. So what is our response? Our response, our job is to let Jesus live through us 
with grace and truth. Um, and that suggests that we should aim to grow in grace and truth. Jesus was a very gracious man. He also embodied the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus understood all of the Old Testament. He was able to apply it immediately in first century culture or to our culture or at any time. And he was full of truth. He embodied truth. It's pretty amazing how uh, Jesus demonstrated grace. You know the story in John chapter 4, the woman at the well? Jesus intentionally finds himself in Samaria at a well. And it's in the middle of the day. That's when people aren't there. But I think he knows he's going to have an encounter because a woman comes out to the well in the heat of the day without the other women in town to get water, and they have a talk. And they engage, and Jesus knows about her, and they engage, and he offers her, uh, he, he asks for a drink to start the discussion, and then he offers her um, a water that will provide life and never thirst again and eternal life. And, and you know, she, well, how can you do that, you know? And uh, they, they talk a little bit, and she raises a couple of things, and then Jesus just lets her know he knows her. He knows that she's had five husbands before and that the man she has at home right now is not her husband. Probably why she came out by herself because uh, she's not uh, highly viewed in her own community. But here's this woman, and Jesus is very gracious with her and very kind to her, and he communicates um, his love, and he communicates truth, and she comes to faith, and then she becomes a witness and tells others. He could have said, woman, you are a sinner. You're going to go to hell the way you're living. Would that be true? Yeah, probably. But he is very gracious. And then there is John chapter 8. You know the story in John ch chapter 8? A woman was caught in adultery. And of course, the, the great question is, is where was the man caught in adultery? But they don't bring him. They just want to get the woman out there. And they throw her out before Jesus. And um, what does Jesus do? I mean, according to the law, the law in the Old Testament said that somebody caught in adultery like this should be stoned to death. Capital punishment. What does Jesus do? He, he offers to let the, um, the men who are around throw the first stone. Most of them are religious leaders, and they, nobody has the courage to do that in front of Jesus. And then Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He treats her with grace. Um, by the way, this is a good reminder. I've said it before. Um, we should never expect non-Christians to act like Christians. That gets Christians into big trouble. When, when you and I expect non-Christians to follow our standards. The sad thing is, is when Christians won't live like Christians. That's the sad thing. That's what confuses people about the gospel. We come to um, the very last verse, verse 18. Jesus, as God's son, has shown us the Father. 
Jesus, as God's son, has shown us the Father. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Now, Abraham had a glimpse of God. He had an experience with God. Uh, Moses had several different experiences with God and saw some kind of manifestation of God. No one has ever seen God but the one and only. Jesus was in a face-to-face, up-close and personal relationship with the Father, and he saw the essential nature of God. And it's in the closest relationship. I think uh, some older translation says in the bosom of the Father, meaning really close. Um, And he has made him know. Because if you see Jesus, you see God. Um, What is our response? Our response is to follow Jesus. Our response is to follow Jesus. I'm going to close with... uh, with a passage. I'm going to close by reading Philippians chapter 2 as a, as a reminder. Um, it's, it's a very well-known passage, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. And the Apostle Paul writes these words. And think uh, how this fits with John chapter 1. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the main have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude, have the same focus, Um, take on a humble uh, perspective, follow uh, the way Jesus lived. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, what was that like? Well, verse 6: who being in the very nature God in his pre-existence, did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage. Uh, Jesus existed before Bethlehem. Uh, he, he was king of heaven, and he was willing to let it go. He was willing to leave it. Um, he could have said, oh, I want to stay up here, um, but he didn't. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. What would that be like for you? What would it be like if uh, you had to become a caterpillar? That's kind of like the, uh, when you think of God, the infinite person, uh, he takes on human, he just gets stuck in this little body. Um, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, Dying on the cross in the first century was like the worst thing imaginable. It was a curse uh, in, in the eyes of the Jewish people. But Jesus was obedient all the way. He sacrificed his life. He gave up himself for us. Um, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And we're going to worship him today because he became obedient even to death with a time of communion. 
But this is the Jesus we worship. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. You and I, every one of us will experience this. Whether you know him personally or you don't know him personally, you will be there. Every knee will bow. Every one of us will give an accounting to God at some point for what we did with our lives. Will it be something like, well done, you good and faithful servant? For some people, it might be, depart from me, I never knew you. And verse 11, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to remember Jesus, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death. So when we celebrate communion, it's God wants us to remember. He wants to bring this right back to the center for us to keep our focus on what God has done for us so that we might be humbled. And we have to remember, um, guys, we're sinners. There's quite a few things that uh, in my life that fall very far short of God. And God has provided our solution. He paid our price. I deserve what Jesus experienced and I need to remember that. So when we take the bread, it's a symbol of the body of Jesus. And when we take the cup, it's a symbol of the blood that was shed. It's a reminder so we don't forget. Because we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to say, oh, that's, yeah, that's kind of important. For, for God, the death of Christ is central to who we are. So I'm going to thank the Lord uh, for the bread and the cup. And uh, our, our communion is, is open. That means that if you're a Christ follower, we, we, we welcome you to, to join us. Uh, we have a sealed communion um, in this little cup, and then we started that with COVID. So that means there are two layers. Be careful when you take the, you have to take the layer off the top to get the bread. And then the second layer uh, is where the juice is. Now, be careful because it's really easy to spill all over your lap, and I don't think you want to do that today. So uh, let me uh, give thanks. And one of the important things is, is when we come to share in this time, the Bible says, let, let a, a man or a woman examine themselves. And so it's important that... Um, if we have any unconfessed sin, that we just deal with that right now, that we talk to God about it, that we seek his forgiveness. Let's pray together. Just take up a, a quiet reflection about your life. Just examine your own life. Ask God to show you if there's anything he wants you to deal with. And I'm always amazed at the promise that we have been given as um, followers of Christ that if we confess our sins, that he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness.
So when we share in communion, there is a time where the entire church has the opportunity to be purified of all unrighteousness. And then, God, thank you right now for the bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you loved us and that he gave himself for us, that he was willing to be obedient even all the way to death. We thank you for the cup that represents the blood that was shed, that is our redemption, that covers our sin. And when you see the life of Jesus and the blood that was shed, you don't see our sin. You see that it's paid in full. Thank you. Thank you for the bread, and thank you for the cup.